Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. On October 3rd, the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried began at a federal court in New York City. By this point, you've probably heard of Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he's now known. Acronyms are a big part of this story. He's the former CEO of FTX, who was indicted by the FBI for allegedly defrauding customers. FTX was a crypto trading firm he started. He also started a hedge fund called Alameda Research. Between the two companies, billions of dollars from customers went missing, and he's accused of misappropriating that money. But before the indictment last year, he was considered a rogue genius by many. He was also treated like a modern-day Robin Hood because he claimed to be making billions of dollars just to give it away to worthy causes. And in full transparency, Vox was one of those causes. In August 2022, Bankman-Fried's philanthropic family foundation, Building a Stronger Future, awarded Vox's Future Perfect a grant for a 2023 reporting project. That project is now on pause. Many of us believed in what he was doing. We certainly wanted to believe. But what was so irresistible about this story? And why did so many people fall for it? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Michael Lewis. He's the best-selling author of books like Liar's Poker and Moneyball. And his new book called Going Infinite is about, you guessed it, Sam Bankman-Fried. It's a fascinating book in all kinds of ways both because Lewis is a terrific storyteller, but also because he had complete behind-the-scenes access to SBF over the last few years, and he was there as the whole thing imploded in spectacular fashion. Since the book was released a couple weeks ago, Lewis has taken a lot of heat from people who think he was too eager to buy what SBF was selling. Which is not surprising. SBF is a public villain now, and there's a price to be paid for profiling someone like that, no matter how careful you are. We spoke on October 3rd. 
What a day you must be having. You got the book launch, Sam's trial just started, and and you've written about this supervillain. So lots of people have lots of feelings about him and the book already. That's got to be a lot. Yeah, no, it's just interesting. The last time I had a publication that felt a bit like this, it's going to sound strange, it was Moneyball. When Moneyball came out, there's a whole world, a whole subculture that was so upset. And it was the subculture of baseball scouts and their friends who wrote articles about baseball scouts. And there was a fury that just like I couldn't get away from. I'd turn on the TV for the next year and someone was saying something rude about me or the book or whenever it was a baseball game. And in this case, there's another subculture. And the fury is maybe a bit more justified this time. Uh, but there's another subculture. It's called crypto. And the crypto people do not like Sam Bankman-Fried. And there's a narrative that has already gained traction. And my narrative rolls in. And it's not, I'm not running a defense of Sam Bankman-Fried, but it is a closely observed story about what happened. And the possibility that this narrative threatens the other narrative has got everybody's hackles up. And even before the book is out, I mean, the book came out today and it was embargoed. And so it's not like a lot of people have read it, but it just feels like there's that initial bump that this book is going to experience, which is just, it's a, a little weird. Yeah. You know, I was going to do the, the whole, let's begin at the beginning. Tell me the story about your first encounter with SBF, but I'm sure approximately every interviewer is asking you that. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Let's, let's not do that exactly, but I do want to just set the scene a little bit for the sake of listeners. Back in 2021, a friend of yours was thinking about doing this big deal with this SBF character, and he asked you to check him out. Shortly after that, he's sitting on your front porch in Berkeley having a chat. What I really want people to know so that the rest of the conversation has an anchor is what was your first read on this guy? I mean, I've heard you say you kind of had the vague impression that this might end in some kind of train wreck, but you really had no idea. So tell me about that initial feeling. No, 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 no. No, no, the initial feeling was excitement about a character and a situation. It was, I cannot believe this person had zero dollars two years ago, and now he has $22.5 billion, according to Forbes magazine. And he's using it to create havoc in American politics, in American in global finance. He's talking about upending philanthropy. It was like trouble everywhere you turned in his life, like conflict. And he was just different as a person. Like he read differently than anyone I'd ever met and was clearly very bright and had an almost Martian's view of the world. Like everything he encountered, he was, he didn't listen to what anybody had to say about it. Didn't believe any of the received wisdom about, I don't know, how to spend money in American politics to win an election, that kind of thing. That he was instead just going to figure it out all by himself with a bunch of other basically kids. I thought it's a funny situation. And so, it was literary opportunism, I actually first felt. And I thought, and with me, you know, I think people think, people don't understand how books get made, maybe. But with me, I don't know what a book is. Often, this is the way they start. I find some person, I just want to follow them around and figure out what the story is later. So what I said to him was, I don't know how this is going to end, but I, I would really like to just watch. And he said, sure, come along. You can come and see what we're doing. My first reaction was like, I just want to see it. I want to see where this goes. You know, it just drives me nuts. I mean, the, he had this whole eccentric cargo shorts and thrift store sneakers, above it all, tech genius persona. And 
to me, it just seems so contrived. But people were really just kind of mesmerized by this guy because of it, that these alien qualities, I guess. So it's really important to understand it did not come across as contrived, and nor nor was it. It was who he was. You know, you go back and talk to people who were in high school with him, and they they saw him after he was a billionaire, and they kind of said, same guy. This this shock was that that guy became a billionaire. It wasn't that he then became a billionaire and then started to wear funny shorts and t-shirts and behave this way. He was always been this way. He didn't change the world, did. And he didn't have, you know, the tech geniuses do, I found, is a lot of words come out of their mouths and they don't make a lot of sense. Or to put it more politely, they're too smart for me to understand. They're saying a whole lot of stuff that's jargon filled with acronyms. They don't want me to understand they want me to be impressed. Sam was not like that. He was very good at explaining and at making sure you understood and allowing you to sort of ask the simple questions. So he didn't make you feel stupid. He wasn't off-putting. I'm with you on the tech, the tech genius stuff. Like I've dipped into Silicon Valley and I've never really wanted to write about that crowd. He wasn't that way. That may be authentically him, but I, I remember this great line by Christopher Hitchens years ago. I mean, he, he said something like, you can get away with anything in this country if you just get yourself called reverend, <laughs> right? But I feel like like the schlubby tech bro is a new reverend. Like, you can get away with anything today if you're just bold enough to wear cargo shorts to a conference. People will think you're an otherworldly genius and give you dump trucks of money. So there is no question that he became a cult figure. There is no question a lot of people brought a lot of baggage to him. The question is, to what extent he actually knew. It feels more like Life of Brian. He is the same person he was in high school. In high school, he was a reject. In high school, he lived, he was completely isolated. No one wanted to be his friend. Everybody thought he was a weirdo. In college, it wasn't a whole lot better. He didn't change. The world changed around. And yes, of course, he eventually, he's not stupid. He becomes aware that every time he opens his mouth, everybody's waiting to hear what he has to say. But... The trick to him, even his public relations person, who'd never done public relations before, decided that it was impossible to try to clean him up for TV or radio or turn him into anything other than he was, that they were just going to let him loose and see what happened. And they were kind of shocked that, oh my God, the world is going to eat this up. It's really important to understand, because it's easy after the fact to say, oh, it was all like artifice, that he really is that guy. He wasn't having to fake anything. He wasn't having to go buy a new pair of cargo shorts because that's what he, you know, he wasn't, none of that. So it wasn't an act. It was him. Now, the question is why him played so well. And it is true that it is amazing how when someone is all of a sudden worth $20 billion, how everybody thinks they're a genius. The power of sudden wealth and the ability of a person who has acquired it all in like 18 months and nobody knows who he is to insinuate themselves into a lot of worlds without anybody ever figuring out who they are, that's, it's curious. You're always writing about people who are interesting or super consequential, but maybe not all that known to the wider public, like like the Moneyball. Billy B. Yeah, Billy Bean behind the analytics revolution in baseball in Oakland, or some of these people behind in the big short, the, the Wall Street guys that people don't know about, but they matter. It had to be different writing a book about someone with this kind of public baggage, right? Where even if people don't really understand what happened here, and I'm still not sure I do, they probably have a very strong opinion <laughs> of the guy at this point, and it's not a flattering one, obviously. Did that, how'd that change your approach here, or did it? Um, it's a good question. I was I'm very aware that this was a difference, that with almost all of my books, most readers could pick them up 
and for a long time think it was a novel because they never heard of any of these people. Like they, they could be invented characters because they don't, these names are unfamiliar to them. And in this case, it's impossible. And you're right, nobody comes with a flattering view of Sam Bankman Freed. Did it change the way I wrote it? It didn't change the way I was as a writer. Like I felt very myself writing the book. I didn't feel any discomfort there. But the way the story's told, rather than me serve as the authority on Sam Bankman Freed, the story bounces from point of view to point of view. It bounces from his point of view to the point of view of people watching him. And so you're learning about him not through my eyes, but through the eyes of people closest to him or the people who are coming on board to help him with his exchange or his therapist or his parents or whoever it is. And I think possibly I went to that structure because I thought it might slightly deflect this thing. Oh, Michael's just making this up about him. I already know what I think about him and it's different than this. So Michael might, must be wrong. So instead of it being Michael, it's not Michael, it's Romnick, it's George Lerner, it's Natalie Tien, it's all these other people who have their own strong view of him and actually window into him and who are kind of authoritative in their own little ways about him. So it's possible that structure was attractive, partly because I was aware that the reader was gonna come thinking they knew everything already. He gave you a ton of freedom and access and you're pretty adamant that he was never trying to meddle Certainly not explicitly. Oh, no, this is beyond weird. I have had subjects who have been kind of shy about asking me what the book's about, whether I'm going to show them doing this or that, who don't actually meddle very much. Never have I had a subject who didn't ask me a single question about what I was doing. Like, not a one. Not a, could I see a little bit of this before you publish it? Not a... What's it going to be called? Not uh, where's my role in it and who else is in it? Nothing. There were a couple of places where he told me something and said, this has got to be off the record. Just a couple. Otherwise, there was no sense of him even being interested, even curious about what the hell I was doing. Why? Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, look, I, I'm a grumpy old skeptic, I guess. I mean, and you've been doing this a long time, so you'd know better than me. But I, I just assume, I can't help but assume that anytime someone like this lets someone like you in so willingly, there's got to be a reason for it apart from vanity. There's got to be an angle. They're looking for credulity that they can exploit. They're looking to get something out of it. What was he trying to get here? What, and what's your role in, in this kind of situation? So I think it was messy, but I think there were several things. In no particular order. At the very start, there was two things. One was he loved Moneyball when he was a little kid. And I think he connected to it. It was sort of like, oh, this is a role for my kind of brain in the world of sports. He thought briefly he wanted to be a baseball general manager like when he was 12. So he knew who I was and, I, and he had a fond feeling about that. So that didn't hurt. I think tactically, what is he trying to do when he meets me? He is trying to become the most trusted crypto exchange, which is, I know, not the greatest achievement. It's a low bar. <laughs> and he probably was the most trusted crypto exchange. I don't know, close. But in particular, he's trying to earn the trust of Washington regulators because he wants them to allow him to offer the products he's offering to people outside the United States to Americans, in particular, Bitcoin futures contracts, and then possibly allow them to trade stocks and everything else on FTX. So how does he get regulators to accept him socially? A book by me doesn't hurt. I think he's thinking that. He didn't ever say that, 
But if I, if you had to say on Sam's chessboard, where do I fit in the beginning? It would be really good to have this book because the kind of people who would make decisions about financial regulation might be my readers. But what happened, I mean, this happens with all my subjects. I hang around so much and I see so much that they start to use me as a sounding board for their problems, social, psychological, and financial. And he did quite a bit of that. He would ask me, should I give money to Elon Musk to buy Twitter? You know, that those kind of questions. He never, as far as I could tell, he never took any of my advice, but he would ask me, you know, like he wanted to hear what I had to say. And sometimes it was almost insulting in how little he considered what I actually did say. But I think he just liked to put it this way. He didn't mind having me around. So in his particular case, I mean, this was all, you asked Billy Bean, like, why do you let me into the Oakland clubhouse? Why do you let me sit in his office while he's trading baseball players? I think he'd say, we just got used to having him around. It's kind of fun having him around. And we just forgot that there was a book. A little bit of Sam is that way, but there's also this little thing. Sam, Sam was so hostile to grownups. He thought anybody over the age of 40 was a waste of time. Like he thought his life was basically going to end at the age of 40 because no one ever did anything great after the age of 40. Never mind whatever counter examples you gave him. He had this kind of view of life. So he had, I think he had this sense that in having me around, he was ticking this box of grown-up presence advice without me actually intruding in the way grown-ups normally do. I had that feeling like, oh, I don't have to listen to his advice, but I did ask a grown-up something. And I'm sure vanity, right? Like, it probably liked the idea of having a book written about it. So, what crimes, if any, did SBF commit? That's coming up after the break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbara Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
before we psychoanalyze this guy anymore, and I'm I'm quite sure we're not done with that yet. Uh, I'm not done with that yet. We at least have to say a bit about what he actually did. And I want to assume that people are vaguely aware of what happened here, but don't really understand the details, which is pretty understandable. Again, I'm not sure I fully understand. How would you sum up the alleged crimes here? Like, What did this guy actually do to get himself arrested? I'm trying to think what you need to know if you need Sam Bankman-Free trial 101. You have 15 seconds. Go. So this guy, who is not a money person, not a material person, is plucked out of MIT by a high-frequency trading firm because actually his aptitudes are exactly those that are required now on Wall Street. Any other time in history, no. But now they are. He sees, while he's at his high-frequency trading firm, that the radical efficiency he's imposing on, say, U.S. stocks does not exist in this new market called crypto. He can take what he's learned and make a fortune in crypto because, you know, you can buy a Bitcoin for $100 in the United States and sell it for $120 in Japan. It's not, not rocket science, but you can do it with his techniques, very fast, automated. And so he sets out to do this. So the company he creates is called Alameda Research. He's going to be a hedge fund for crypto. Leave that to one side for a moment. While he's doing that, he realizes that kind of accidentally that the exchanges that he's trading on don't work very well. There are hundreds of these or dozens of these crypto exchanges and they all have problems. They aren't well suited to a institutional caliber crypto trader like himself. So he creates the software for an exchange and that's FTX. And then he's sitting on a gold mine. The FTX blows up, it goes great. So he's got this profitable business, very simple business, casino kind of. He's taking a little vig off of every trade. But at the same time, he still has this old hedge fund that trades on the crypto exchange. This is where we have problems. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, and they're right next to each other in Hong Kong. Then they're right next to each other in the Bahamas. His girlfriend is Caroline Ellison is the head of the Alameda Research, the crypto hedge fund. He's the head of the exchange. In practice, they live together. They're, you know, all the rest. Obvious conflicts of interest. He's trading on his own exchange. As it turns out, so this is the crime, the alleged crime. The money that was supposed to be, you when you go trade on FTX, when you, Sean, want to buy a Bitcoin, you send some dollars to FTX and they're supposed to just hold your dollars and hold your Bitcoin in FTX in kind of cold storage. It turned out the depositor's money was not in cold storage on FTX, but it was actually inside the hedge fund as a free loan to Sam Bankman-Fried's hedge fund. And when everybody at once last November wanted their money back from FTX, the money wasn't there. And so... This is the problem. Now, everybody agrees on these facts. Most of the money wasn't there. Like there was $15 billion that was meant to be inside of FTX. When the dust settles on the run on FTX, there's like $10 billion missing. And the question is, where is it? How much is still there? What happened to it? How did it get from one place to the other? And that is what the trial is gonna sort out. And it's actually kind of complicated. When you, Sean, back in 2019, when FTX opened, sent your money to FTX. You actually didn't send your money to FTX because FTX couldn't get bank accounts. No one would give them a bank account. And you need a bank account to send dollars to. You know, you want to wire your dollars into FTX, they have to give you a bank account. Alameda, on the other hand, the hedge fund, did have bank accounts. So they told customers, wire the money into Alameda and it will then be on FTX. And you would see on your, I've seen these wire statements. It actually says you're wiring it to Alameda or to some other entity inside of Alameda. $8.8 billion piles up this way inside of Alameda. So that's one mechanism. 
for the money getting in the wrong place. The second mechanism is that everybody who's trading on FTX, it's not just cash for Bitcoin. You're allowed to buy Bitcoin futures, which is kind of like they're giving you a loan to make a bigger bet than your stake. So you might put up $10 to buy $100 worth of Bitcoin and your $10 is margin. And if the, the minute Bitcoin loses, that trade loses $10, they take it, they take you out of the trade. Like you're not allowed to lose money on FTX. You don't, you don't lose their money. You can lose your initial stake. Everybody's was managed that way that, yeah, you can make bets here. Yeah, you can make bets with margin, but we're not going to be exposed to your risk. The exception was Alameda. Alameda could lose unlimited sums trading on FTX. And when it all went bad, it looked like they had two and a half billion dollars or something of losses. So that was the other way that the money went from one place to the other. So let me try to get this right. Um, so he basically builds the Mandalay Bay casino for the crypto world. Yeah. And then started doing what you're not supposed to do, which is gamble in your own casino. And he doesn't just gamble in his own casino. He gambles with other people's money, his customers' money in his casino. Is that right? That's correct. It's slightly more complicated because you have to sort of imagine that the person who creates Mandalay Bay is sitting there gambling on his own before he creates it. He didn't start gambling after he created He was already gambling when he created his casino. And the casino in the beginning needed him to be there on other other side of people's trades. In the very beginning, it was very useful that if Sean came to buy a Bitcoin on FTX, Alameda was there to sell it to them. So at the very beginning, they were on the other side of a huge number of the trades. Over time, they became almost irrelevant to the activity. But in the beginning, they were a big deal. So there was a legitimate reason in the beginning for them to be present, but there was always this conflict. And, you know, I'm 15 minutes from the courthouse right now. And right now, Sam Bankman-Fried is in there before he gets taken back to the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. And the lawyers are making two arguments. The defense is making one argument and the prosecution is making another. And these stories are going to sound, everybody's going to agree on what we've just said. But where they're going to start to disagree is about what Sam knew, when he knew it, how he reacted to it. And that's TBD. I mean, I know some of it, some of it's in the book, but he's got a story. Nobody's disproven his story yet, but the other side will have a story that will seek to disprove it. One of our Vox reporters, Kelsey Piper, yep. published, I'm, I'm sure you, you must have saw this. I was there when he talked to her. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so I woke up in the morning, went into his unit, and goes, I did something dumb. I talked to uh, her. Yes, he did. And you know why he talked to her? Why? He talked to her because she's also was an effective altruist, I think. And so he knew her from a previous life. And when he woke up in the morning, he was very upset because he thought it had been off the record, but it wasn't off the record. Let me explain to people listening, uh, in case they aren't aware of this piece, and you should read it. We will link to it in the show notes. She has this long Twitter DM thread with Sam as everything is kind of starting to come crashing down. It already crashed. Oh, it already crashed. Okay. Yeah. So we're like in the ashes here. And and it's a struggle to find the right word to describe how he comes across. It, it comes across in different contradictory ways, right? He yeah. says at one point that like... That he didn't want to do anything sketchy because it's not worth it. And how every little decision he made seemed justifiable in the moment until it wasn't. I have a hard time believing that. Do you believe that? Do you think he believes that, really? So never mind what I believe. I think he does believe that. I think. And I tell you why. I think he believes that. From the moment it collapsed, I've never seen him waver in the conviction of his own innocence. And he hasn't done, for example, the thing that every other crypto person whose business seems to collapse 
He didn't flee. The typical thing to do in crypto is you go to Dubai or you go to Central Europe and it's with some country that doesn't have an extradition treaty. There was never even a step towards the door. And from the beginning, he's been insistent with his lawyers over their objections that he wants nothing more to get than to get on a witness stand and tell a story. Now, never mind whether his story is true. The question, the question is, does he think it's true? I don't know if you do that if you don't think it's true. I just don't. I've never seen a cynicism in, in his view of his own story, with the exception of that exchange with her. And that, I'm trying to think back. And they were talking about like his, he was making fun of his need to make woke political donations that he didn't. I think that was what he was saying. There's stuff he did that he was quite cynical about in that you have to do this because it's all life is a board game. And the, this is the way the game is played kind of thing. There was a lot of that. But the story he's telling now about what he thinks happened, I'm pretty sure he believes it in his own head. But see, that's the thing. Later in that exchange with Kelsey, he says, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, all that stuff I used to say about not crossing ethical lines, that was all PR bullshit, right? In the end, the winners are good because they won and the losers are bad because they lost. Well, okay then. <laughs> like maybe that's tr- maybe that's true, yeah. right? But like it doesn't sound like a guy who just slipped on a banana peel and accidentally defrauded <laughs> like a bunch of people. You know what I mean? I think in that case he was talking about his political donations. Yeah. And you feel it when you're with him that he gamifies life and he views the rules as like things to work around if you can. At the same time, he would also I mean, I think it's kind of what he did was like he played the game poorly. And this was, this is why, for example, all the FTX employees had all their money on FTX. Like the employees went down with the ship because no one could imagine that you would jeopardize this $40 billion business for your hedge fund, which is actually kind of pointless here. It's not like Bernie Madoff where you say, well, he had to keep running this Ponzi scheme because there was no business there. Like he needed the new dollars in order to pay off people, pretend returns on the old dollars. In this case, he had this thing that was generating a billion dollars in revenues and $400 million in profits that every venture venture capitalist in the planet wanted a piece of. And he does this with it. It's like, it was like a misplayed hand. And that's why it doesn't add up into a simple story of fraud. Well, you see, you gotta, you gotta help me a little bit here. Like the Ponzi scheme thing, right? Like I am not a crypto expert from a distance. The whole thing has, has always looked like a giant pyramid scheme to me with a pretty basic Ponzi structure where it's just new investors being roped in. Are you talking about crypto itself? Yeah. Yeah. Crypto. Yeah. That's different from running a crypto casino. Yeah. Right. Right. But nothing tangible is being created there. And I know you don't think FTX in particular was a Ponzi scheme. Maybe it wasn't strictly speaking, but holy hell, like all I see is a guy gambling with other people's money at the casino he created without their consent. And I don't know what you call that or what anyone calls that. I, I just call it stealing. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what it, it's, it's theft, right? But where it gets curious and more interesting than that, or if you go back to January of last year, inside of his private hedge fund, yes, there are whatever, $8 billion or whatever of customer deposits that shouldn't be there, whatever it was. But in addition to that, there's another, I don't know, $20 billion of his own money. And what he's doing with that money, if he's giving that money away, if he's losing that money in the markets, the first $20 billion of it is his money. So I don't even think at that point he's even thinking he's using other people's money 
Eventually he is when crypto collapses and he no longer has the $20 billion or whatever he had. But yes, eventually it's theft. He's borrowing their money without asking and not paying them a rate of interest at the most polite. Now, here's where it also gets sort of interesting. The dust is now settled in the bankruptcy. They've now run some numbers and they've announced that there's $8.6 billion of customer deposits that have not been repaid. They've also announced this $7.3 billion of liquid assets on hand they've already found. Now, it's sort of like stuffed away in various crypto exchanges and in bank accounts that they didn't know they had. So the actual gap right now is $1.3 billion. In addition to this, Sam had amassed a venture capital portfolio of about $4.5 billion. That has not mostly not been sold. And this is a, by way of saying, I mean, this would be the comic touch at the end. It's conceivable that the money is there, that like the people are going to get their money back. Right now, if you go into the market, you can buy claims. You can buy someone's deposits they haven't gotten returned to them. And you can get them pretty cheaply. You can get them like for 35 cents. But I've interviewed some of the people who do this, the big time investors who've been buying up these claims. They make a case they're going to get 100 cents on the dollar. So what is that? It's theft, but the money's still there. Then it gets complicated. I mean, nobody cares about this, but it's, but it's just a fact. Complicated indeed. There are conflicting reports about the money that was lost and the money that remains. So what does this case reveal about our larger financial system? And what can we learn from it? That's coming up after a break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Your book actually opens with a quote from a German mathematician about how the infinite isn't real or it's not something to be found in reality. It's just an idea. And that seems like such a perfect metaphor for crypto. It's just fairy dust. But then again, there's that great scene in Wolf of Wall Street where Matthew McConaughey says basically the same thing about the whole damn financial system. Maybe it's all really fairy dust. You even mentioned somewhere in the book that there was a prominent VC who told you he thought Sam would be a trillionaire. That's with a T. And I think that just speaks to the mindset of this whole crowd. There are no limits. 
everything is possible. And therefore, on some level, even if they don't recognize it, everything is permitted as well. Yes, except when you're playing it as the board game, you're a dumb player if you're playing without any regard to the law, because eventually the law is going to find you. You know, the gamification of finance has led to lots of behavior, not just in crypto, in the middle of the U.S. stock market. That's clearly kind of bad. Like, it may not be illegal, though. In fact, what's shocking isn't what's illegal, but what's legal. And I think it's made it easier for people in the middle of finance to do things to other people that they wouldn't do in a less complex situation or or a less abstract situation. Like, if I was dealing with you face-to-face, I will treat you one way and behave one way. But if it's pushing buttons on a computer and leading the, letting the computer go, go do stuff to you, I'll behave in another way. So I do think there's been this kind of drift away from decent, ordinary behavior, partly because of the complexity of finance. Well, there's a hell of a quote in the book in that fifth chapter from Nishad Singh, who worked with Sam. And, you know, he says, like, that's where I learned what the law is. The law is what happens, not what is written. I mean, shit, that distills a lot (laughs) right there. It does distill a lot. And that's something he said to me before it collapsed. I mean, when I first interviewed him, I did this thing with all the characters very early on. I said, the first time I met them, Caroline, Nishad, Sam, I said, I want to do a pre-mortem. This thing all falls apart. It ends really badly. Tell me the story of how it ended badly. This is an exercise of the imagination. It's a kind of like, what plausibly could go really wrong? And it is very telling that Nishad had something top of mind that he was sure was the biggest problem. And this would have been like, I don't know, February, March of last year. It was that Sam would be kidnapped. <laughs> it wasn't that someone's going to discover that we have all the money in the wrong place. And it isn't, I don't actually think he was even thinking of that at that time. I think they thought they had infinite dollars. He thought the danger here is that the business is Sam and Sam wanders around in cargo shorts and a t-shirt on the street all by himself without any security. And that's going to end badly. Your point about the law, they start a business that is pretty quickly a $40 billion business in finance without any real regulation. They had licenses, but they didn't have anybody really looking at over their shoulder. They could do whatever they wanted to do. You know, this was sort of the joy of crypto, right? That it existed outside the regulatory structure. And they don't know anything. They know a little bit. Sam had worked at Jane Street for a couple of years, but they don't have a whole lot of experience with anything. They're kind of making it up as they go along. And to my way of thinking, it was kind of refreshing that Nishad was willing to say that. I've been watching how this works, and it just seems like the law is an arbitrary thing. It's not, there are these rules, and sometimes you pay attention to them, and sometimes you don't, and it's just a question of when they come down on you and when they don't. Reading that's like reading Machiavelli, right? You don't want it to be true, but you gotta know it is. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of true. It isn't that he's got some warped perception of the world. It's this, in fact, that's something that probably rattles around the brains of older Wall Street people, but they would never say it. So let me ask you, Michael, I mean, all that stuff, all the altruistic stuff that Sam was spending spending on the way to the top, right? He was going to take all this cash and he was going to use it to solve humanity's biggest problems, nuclear war, destructive AI, pandemics. Do you think he was really sincere and his intention regardless of how this thing played out, to do all those things? God, yes. You can't understand the texture and the fun of the story without 
knowing just how serious he was about this. This was his identity, that the first time he finds a crowd that he not only fits in with, but can be sort of celebrated by, is this effective altruist crowd. And it was the movement when he collides with it, when he's in college, is different from what it becomes. The movement when he collides with college is sort of a little easier to understand. It's quantifying philanthropy, quantifying the effect of the goodness you do, and public health movements. Sort of like, okay, you make $100, you can give it to Yale University, your alma mater, or you can give it to Africa for bed nets to prevent people from getting malaria. And what is the best way to spend this money? And they end up sort of like, let's measure lives saved with the dollars or quality life years created with the dollars. So it becomes a mathematical exercise, very appealing to him. Not doing it because he feels any real human feeling or cares about people. He just likes the math exercise. He likes the reason behind it. And then you add on to this, when he collides with his movement, the Oxford philosophers who've created the movement are peddling a new idea. And the idea is earn to give. The idea is it isn't just about philanthropy. It's about going out and making the dollars for specifically to give them away. And so you young man at, at MIT, you could become a doctor or you could go to Wall Street, become a banker and pay 10 doctors to go to Africa. And he finds this appealing. So make as much money as you can, give it away as effectively you, as you can. He is all in, like it is his identity. And yet you touch on some of this, uh, you know, in the book, recounting how horrified a lot of the people who worked for him were. And these are all, we're talking about committed, effective altruists, right? But because he's so reckless with the money, which is not something you would do if the goal is to donate money to save lives, which is why I cannot help but think this guy is impossibly full of shit. <laughs> well, let me just reframe that for you just a little bit. Because it is high comedy to me, this situation, that when he leaves his Wall Street job to create this crypto firm, the only people he recruits to be with him in this crypto firm are other effective altruists. So you gather these effective altruists, most of whom have no experience whatsoever in finance. You raise $175 million or so from other effective altruists to gamble with, to trade with. And they lose it just incredibly sloppily. And what happens after about three months is the effective altruists are in a civil war. Half the people are on Sam's side and half the people think Sam's a crook or so unbelievably reckless they don't want to be there with him and that they end up arguing all about money. These people who supposedly don't care about money and anybody who makes the money in the place is going to give it to the same cause, so who cares who makes it? They're arguing about their bonuses and who's going to own which piece of the company and if certain people quit, how much of a severance payment they're going to get. And the effective altruists who are lending them the money to gamble with are charging like 80% rates of interest. And so Nishad says, you know, it was just kind of odd to be an effective altruist and realize that we were here all, a bunch of effective altruists all getting together squabbling about money. What was interesting about that period in Sam's career was that it was a dry run for what happened, right? That half the effective altruists think he's a crook because the money's missing. It's missing. Did he steal it? That's, they were thinking that kind of thing. They accuse him of being a crook. They accuse him of being dishonest. And the minute they leave, they find the money, that the money actually wasn't missing. It was just very, very, very sloppily managed. And the question for me is, was this a version of what happened later? Like, he proved himself to be just insane in his willingness not to keep track of things. Like, insane. 
And it scared the hell out of half the effective altruists in his business. So much that they all quit. It feels like we saw a foreshadowing of what was going to happen three years later. But no, I mean, it, it's so interesting. I mean, I, again, I don't understand the finance stuff. I, I think much more about your role as a writer and just what it's like to chronicle a story like this. And, you know, we're, we're talking a part about how fuzzy the lines can be and how complicated the people and, and the world really are. And there was this, this whole thing recently about the blind side. This is a, a book you wrote that was later turned into a movie about the football player, Michael Orr. And, and he came out and made some allegations about the family and deceiving him in order to, to profit. And they deny that. But I'm thinking about it now because we are talking about this extraordinary character, whatever you think of him, SBF. And your job as a writer is to tell a story about what happened. And like all of us, when we're constructing narratives, it can be paradoxically harder to see what's happening because we get invested in the story we're telling. And over the course of telling this story, did you find yourself constantly bumping up against your expectations? Did you find yourself bumping up against the narrative you thought you were telling as it was changing or evolving, as the world around you was changing and evolving? Not so much that. The problem I had was last November, right before it collapses. I was in a conversation with a friend I use as a sounding board for stories. And I said to him, I want to just bounce this off you because I got a problem. I've spent a year with this character and this material. He's a great character. The material is wild, but I don't know if I have a book. I was prepared to walk away from it because I didn't know what the story was. And I laid it all out. And he said, if this is interesting, essentially what, what I was laying out for him was, character lighting up the world in various ways because he's bouncing around different systems in the world. He's bouncing around American politics. He's bouncing around American global media, global finance. And his interactions with these systems are teaching us a lot about these systems. But I don't know where it goes. He said, your problem is you don't have a third act. He said, this is never a movie. He said, but you're a good enough writer. You could probably dance your way out of this. And the character is so good. And this other stuff is so good. You ought to just try to write it. Two days later, FDX collapses. He writes me a note and says, like, can I direct the movie? It's like incredible what just happened. Life just handed you a third act. So I didn't know how to tell it until I knew where it was ending. I didn't, and which is an odd thing to say because I didn't, I, I mean, if it asked me there, I could imagine five different possible endings and none of them would have been what happened. Once there was an ending and I could see which where I was navigating to, I was able to sit down in January and it just kind of wrote itself. And I didn't have any trouble at all. Did you feel even a little bit that maybe you drank the Kool-Aid? Maybe you bought too much of this guy's bullshit? Because um, it's it's amazing how quickly things can change, right? Like, if this book was published a year ago, before everything kind of fell apart, w would it have read like a hagiography, right? Because this guy was still on top of the world. No, I wouldn't have written it. I didn't write it, right? I didn't write a word of it. I spent a year and whatever gathering stuff, trying to figure out what the story was. The problem is people bring their own predisposition of how they would go about writing a book to me. And it's false to me. I don't go in with like, oh, he's a genius. So I'm going to write about a genius. That was not it. He was interesting. And he was going to teach us about lots of the way the world works because he's interacting with the world in all sorts of bizarre ways. And so I was, I regard him as a tool, like an instrument. I didn't know the meaning of the instrument except that he was going to light up lots of spaces for us. And I've done this before with other characters. Like, I don't know what it is until I get into it. 
I never how, how I saw him in the first place. I saw him as odd. He was very odd and interesting. So he remains odd and interesting. When it all fell apart and the world turned on him, so I'd seen, now I saw the other side. All these people who were rallying to his side and thought he was a genius and wanted to be his best friend when he had $22 billion were now burying him on Twitter now that he was, you know, crypto criminal number one. The very same people who took his money were most vicious about it. So I had these two things going on. And I thought, wow, I've got the literary opportunity. The way to think about this book is this. I have privileged access to what happened, to the story. I have privileged access to a picture in my head of him, who he is as a person. It's very messy. It didn't really change very much when it all fell apart. Because I'd known about what had happened back in Alameda, you know, two years before. It was all very messy and people thought he was a crook. But I have a chance to tell a story that's different from the stories that are going to be out there, which are largely the prosecution story and the defense's story. And it's going to be so much better of a story. You know, you're always looking for what the interaction with the reader is going to be. I could treat the reader as a member of the jury. Here's the book. You tell me what you feel about it. And I can tell you already that small sample size so far, but if there are 12 people in a jury box and I gave them this book, three people would say lynch him. Three people would say, I think he's innocent. And six people would think, I don't know what the hell to think. This is just wildly messy. There'd be an argument. And I've had people, I mean, my early readers come at me with radically different views of who he is, what happened. You have a view. It's just your view. But what I've written is a Rorschach test. It's telling me something about you, what your view is, more than it's telling me about Sam. And that's the goal. It's like, let the reader have that experience. There has to be some big lesson in all this, or at least I, 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 I really need there to be one, Michael. You want a lesson one? Okay. So here's one. People say buy crypto, don't. <laughs> all right. Stay away from crypto. No. So what's the lesson? Well, I have my own lesson. It's maybe a bad lesson. I am so pleased that I let myself be drawn into a story in the way I was drawn into this story. Like just follow the character and see what happens. I've done it before, but never with quite such an extreme way that I go in two hours from not even knowing who this person is to thinking, I bet I could follow him and a story will happen. So for my own writing life, I love this approach. It's like character situation, worry about everything else later. So that's my own literary lesson. The lesson for readers. All right, here's one. You're not going to swallow this, but I'm going to run it by you anyway. <laughs> because actually, my son proposed this, my 16-year-old. He met Sam couple times, Sam would trounce him in chess when he was under house arrest. And so he got a, sen a little bit of a sense of him. And he then read stuff about Sam. And he could see there's a pretty radical difference between what people are saying about this person and how this person seems to me, which is an interesting feeling. You've had that with people who you meet a celebrity and you're surprised how they are compared to what you've read about them. And I said to him, what do you think this purpose of this book is before I'd written a word of it? And he said, it's to teach people about controversy, that when you see something controversial, pause before you believe what people are saying about it. Like there's a texture of nuance that's being lost in the way we talk about these things. And don't rush to judgment. Like the radical thing is withhold judgment until you learn more. Why do you think everyone really wanted to believe in this story? Why they wanted to believe it on the way up and why they want the way so angry on the way down? Well, I wanted there to be a Sam. 
You know, his lawyers, who's under all, in all kinds of trouble, said that had that line. I want that. I wanted there to be a Sam. Oof. And what he meant was, like, we live in a world of problems. Our institutions suck. Our institutions are enfeebled. The instruments we have to deal with the problems don't seem up to the task. The idea of someone rolling in and generating so much wealth he becomes a problem-solving institution is very appealing. The way up, that's that. He's also, you now see him in a different light, but if you had sat down with him two years ago, you would have enjoyed his company. You would have said, wow, it's really odd that someone has $22 billion and isn't a douchebag. When you meet rich people, so used to the baggage that comes with their wealth, and he didn't really have much of it. You just say, that's just odd. He's so normal. As odd as he is, he's normal. He's not lording it over me in any way. So on the way up, that's that. On the way down, this is where it gets weird to me. If you try to map the anger as best I can map it towards him, very heavily concentrated in the United States, the rage here, the mob here is is so much more frightening than anything outside of here. The losses are almost all outside the United States, that Americans weren't allowed on the FTX exchange. They were allowed on the US exchange, but it was pretty small. So the losses don't map onto the anger in the way that I would have thought they would. And the people who are really angry are pretending they're angry because they're the victims, but they themselves aren't the victims. If you're really angry about like the victims, you ought to think a lot harder about like how the bankruptcy people are handling the money because the victims could get their money back and that would solve that problem. So there's something else but under the rage that has nothing to do with Sam, nothing to do with the losses, nothing to do with the victims. It's just a desire to be angry. And that is sort of like the mood of our culture right now. I'm curious if the experience of writing this book, a book about a villain or a book about a guy who became a villain while you were writing the story, if you feel like you learned something new as a writer that might change how you approach stories in the future or even change the sort of stories you want to write about in the future. I mean, this is going to sound horrible, but it was all so much fun. It was so much fun to have like such a shaded character that you know the reader is going to have such a complicated reaction to. I mean, would that I get given a character as complicated as this again? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound trite, but the effect is probably to raise my expectations of my characters as characters. The problem I've had with characters, and I mean, it's one time in particular, but when I have a problem with a character, it's when I can't find problems with them. And if they're just like, fine, they're no edges. And this person had so many edges. I was just, I'm spoiled. You know, I just loved writing about him. He was a joy to depict. And I don't know, maybe that's not the answer you're looking for, but I think that's all I'm going to come away with is that I really liked having this character who was so shaded, who was so problematic. It's a hell of a story. Once again, the book is called Going Infinite, The Rise and Fall of a New Tycoon. Uh, Michael, it is always fun to chat. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Sean. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solin is our fact checker. And A.M. Hall is the boss. Special thanks to Caitlin Buguki. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at the gray area at Vox.com. And please share it with your friends on all the socials. 
New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays. Listen and subscribe. The Gray Area is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com slash give.